How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's Word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome to Michael Easley in Context. We are in the middle of an expository teaching series of 1 Peter, but throughout the weeks, we will be releasing some special edition interviews with folks who have walked the talk. These are First Peter sufferers in action in our day and our time. They are men and women who have endured immense trials, but have remained anchored to Christ and have found otherworldly joy and inexplicable grace throughout their journey. Today's interview is with Michael's dear friend, Johnny Erickson Tata. This audio actually comes from a video we released of Johnny and Michael at the beginning of 2018. So if you listen to this episode and think, I've got to share this with a certain friend, you can send them the podcast episode or you can direct them to the video on our website, michaelincontext.com. And we'll include the direct link in our show notes. On that webpage, there is also a free five-day devotional written by Michael about clinging to hope amidst pain. So be sure to check that out. But without further ado, let's listen to Johnny's story. Johnny, you've been sitting in a wheelchair 50 years. Makes me sound so old. (laughs) Yikes. Five decades of paralysis, um, quadriplegia, that's a long time. I took that dive into shallow water when I was 17 and uh, broke my neck. That left me without use of my hands or my legs and lung issues, kidney issues, all those sorts of things. And God's been so gracious. You say that so easy. Well, um, the other day I was reading in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. Came across it. It's, it's a passage I read so many times, but... This time, when I read it, um, the, the word stuck out, after you have suffered, quote, a little while. Um, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself, what, confirm, restore, establish you. And when I read that, I thought, my goodness, it really does feel just like a little while, Michael. Let me read it. After you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, not a little bit of all grace, who called you, to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Yep, I love that part, the all grace. You're right, not just a little bit, all. I'll take it all, Jesus. I need it all. <laughs> I desperately need it all. And I think, I don't know, but maybe when we finally learn to just go to him every morning and say, I need you, I can't do this quadriplegia, but I can do all things through you. Maybe, maybe when we get attuned into his grace, maybe when we step into the shower of his mercy, maybe, maybe when we live in him day by day, moment by hour by hour, that's when our suffering, as we look back, begins to feel like just a little while. Because honestly, Michael, I cannot recall the horror and the, and the horrible anguish of, of those early days. But, but when you tell your story so many times, which I almost hate to have you relive it and retell it, but 
when you're in the striker frame, when those long agonizing nights, when you're alone, when you're wondering where is God, that's got to haunt you at some level. It, it used to haunt me, um, but 50 years, that's a long time. Um, let me show you the sketch that I drew when I was uh, in occupational therapy. I learned how to write and type and hold brushes and charcoal pencils between my teeth. And, and this is the sketch I drew. It's a, it's a face that says, oh, God, this is now my life. I got to do this. You expect me to do this? Even though I was trusting God incrementally, I was still depressed for the longest of times. It took many years, I think, what, five, six, seven, almost ten years for me to just find my, find my way up out of that miry pit and, and finally hold on to God desperately each and every day. Was there a turning point, like a defining moment you can say, okay, I'm not going to live with this suffering, miserable attitude. I'm going to... Well, I, I tell this story a lot, but it's, it's, it's so sweet. It's so precious to me. I can't tell it without tearing up. My, my friends who were praying for me and opening up the Bible to me and supporting me and, you know, just surrounding me and trying to cheer me on through all this, they were only teenagers themselves. But one night, um, Friday night, it was late. They came to my house and they had this idea that we go, go downtown to Baltimore City to the old Pennsylvania railway station and, and sing because they knew I was in high school choir, and, and they, they liked to sing as well. So we piled into the Camaro, raced downtown. 11 o'clock at night, we tumbled out onto this, this huge, beautiful railway station with vaulted ceilings and marble columns and travertine floor, and, and, and there was hardly anybody there, maybe a few sailors waiting for a train, a guy pushing a mop. And we found this little corner, and we started singing. And the harmonies were so beautiful. And finally, an officious-looking guard comes walking over and looks at our little group and says, you, you kids, you shouldn't be laudering here. You get out of here right now. It's 11 p.m. Get out of here. You know, and, and then he pointed to me and said, and you, you in that wheelchair, put it back where you found it right now. I said, but sir, it's my wheelchair. Don't give me any lip. You put it back where you found it. And I said, sir, it's my wheelchair. And everybody was laughing so hard, and he felt embarrassed. But still, you know, he kind of shooed us out the door, and we laughed all the way home. And I, I hadn't laughed in a long time. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I was uh, lifted out of my wheelchair that night and put in bed, one of my friends stayed and said, Johnny, I just want you to know that really spoke to me because it's the first time I heard you call it my wheelchair. And I think that was a turning point. I could call it my suffering. I mean, even when I went through cancer some years ago, it's my cancer. I'm going to own this. I'm going to, I'm going to wrestle with it. I'm going to be like Jacob. I'm going to grab it, and I'm going to be, you know, wrestle this thing to the ground. And God, you're going to bless me through this. And I'm not going to turn my back on it, or try to ignore it, or escape it, or drug it, or, you know, I'm just going to walk into it and somehow find God in it. And I think when I called it my wheelchair, is when it became the suffering that God changed me in. And, and he's still changing me. So let's fast forward a little bit. You define it now, it's mine. You own it. You know you're not going to get better. Better. You've been to Catherine Kuhlman. You've been to healing seminars. You've gone. You've been cordoned off out of the range of the cameras. Mm. 
Walk us through a little bit of the emotion of what your relationship with Christ is like when you're turning that page now going, this is now the new reality. Up until then, I'd been imagining my Christian life. You know how some people, we Christians, we, we imagine it. We're, we're, we're in such a, an imaginary society. You can imagine anything and do it nowadays. Everything is virtual. And, and I think I was imagining my Christian life. I was imagining I had a great life of prayer. Oh, I love to pray, I would say. What do you mean you love to pray? Oh, I, I share Christ regularly. Do you? Oh, I love reading my Bible. Really? And uh, I think my disability is what, what popped the hot air balloon bubble of my fantasy about my Christian life. And I began to see that, my goodness, when you sign up at the Army of Christ, there's no fine print in the contract. You're going you're gonna to die. You're going to die to self, die to your wants and wishes. You're going to pick up that cross daily, God tells you. And you're going to follow Jesus down the long, bloody, painful road to Calvary. Not to say it's not laced with joy, but it's certainly not the kind of joy that you knew before the bubble burst. This is a different kind of joy when you walk down that path. This is joy that is so out of this world, heaven sent, the kind of joy that you fight for every day that is... That is so deep and powerful and profound and glad and happy. You can go through anything. Michael, I was lying in bed the other night and I was in such pain. And I was so darn happy. How can you do that? How can you? I don't know. Can you tell me how to do that, will you? (laughs) Seriously, though, you and I know people that live in chronic pain with far less disability than you experience. And they don't have joy. They grind their teeth. They're miserable, they're bitter, they're sullen. You spend a ton of your time trying to encourage those folks. I do. And sometimes it's very tough because we get this mindset that we've got to complain, we've got to grumble, we've got to not only tell ourselves how hard it is, but everybody else around us. But I think verses like 1 Thessalonians 5.18 are so useful. In everything, give thanks. That's a good place to begin. It's small. But but did you start there? Yeah, I did. Okay. But not big. I started small. I remember when my friend told me this, I said, you got to be kidding. I'm not thankful for this wheelchair. And he said, we don't have to be thankful. Give thanks. I cannot do that. I'd be a liar. I'd be a hypocrite if I did that. He said, start small. Just find something, anything for which you can give thanks. Do something physical. Mouth the words. And it'll begin informing and instructing your spirit. Because you're not being a hypocrite. You're not doing something that's false. You're, you're doing the best you can to get yourself under the shower of God's mercy and say, help me, Jesus. I'm going to start. I'm going to obey. I'm going to trust in little tiny bits. And I'm going to believe that somehow you're going to give me the emotion one of these days of being actually thankful. And he does. He's a God of great reward. He is our very great reward. And this God of gratitude, I'm convinced, is the one who will one day give my friends who are still struggling with chronic pain and being so growling about it, uh, it'll give them a spirit of thank you. I'm alive and I can do this. You and I have a passage that we have shared often out of uh, 2 Corinthians where Paul writes, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of 
mercies, the God of all comfort. We like that part. Let's just stop right there, right? (laughs) Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort in abundance through Christ. But if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Mm-hmm. Or if we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same suffering which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. We could spend wow. a month talking about that. But one of the things that I find so remarkable about you and Ken is that not only do you deal with chronic pain and cancer and pressure sores and, 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 you seem to transcend that and focus on comforting others and talking to others. I mean, you're a celebrity for crying out loud. Well, I comfort others because, for one thing, it, it, it's, it's a great distraction you know, <laughs> off my own pain. You know, you know, let's talk about other people's pain for a while. Let's, let's get my focus off myself. And how can I serve you? How can I help you? And I think the best model for us is the Lord Jesus. I mean, even when he was on his deathbed on the cross, you know, they hang him there like meat on a hook. And, he, and, he's, and, he, and he's helping this guy crucified next to him. He's ministering to him. He's, he's connecting with him and showing him the way. And that, that's such a model for us. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Um, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that, that you should follow in his steps. That's my example. If Jesus could minister to others and serve others and comfort others on his own deathbed, still on the cross. And I can tell a quadriplegic who, who, who's, who's bedridden, who, who is on a ventilator, you can, you can encourage others. You can do it. You've got this computer right by your bedside. You've got mouth uh, connections with it. You can do voice activation, dictate, write some notes of encouragement. Do that. It'll do a world of good for your soul. I mean, it, it, and it does. We can comfort anybody at any, I love that word, any trial, any affliction. And um, I think it makes the body of Christ stronger. It makes the community of those who enjoy common grace stronger. And it cer- certainly does our soul a world of good. You and I have talked about the fellowship of suffering. Mm. Explain how you think through what it means that somehow our sufferings are Christ's sufferings and we have this intimacy, this fellowship with him in suffering. I'm nowhere near the inner sanctum of fellowshipping in in his sufferings, nowhere near it. But the world is skeptical and cynical and they're just waiting for some Christian to actually act like they have joy in the midst of their pain. Because then that that raises the question, why? I mean, it's surely what is the the seed of the church when martyrs shed their blood. Why shouldn't it be the seed of the church when other skeptics look at us in an unbelieving world and say, why? How could they have died with, with a smile on their face? How can you live with a smile on your face? You know, sometimes, and I know you understand this, Michael, dying would be so much preferable. You know, for me to live as Christ, yes, but to die, oh my goodness, it would be such gain. 
You tell the story in the book that you and Ken crafted about seeing this guy a few rows down with this dark, shocking black hair. You have a thing for guys with dark hair? <laughs> no, I was, I was sitting in church one morning. I was single. I was in my early 30s. I was enjoying life. And um, I was bored with the sermon that day. And I'm thinking, I can't sit here being bored. I got to do something that honors God. Okay, so I'll pray. So my eyes fell in the back of this man's head, and I didn't know who he was. But I felt strangely compelled to pray for him. And I did, through the balance of that boring sermon, all the way up to the benediction. And I almost wheeled up to this man for whom I had prayed for 20, 30 minutes and introduced myself. But I thought that would look a little odd. And then we have to be introduced to mutual friends. And the first thing I said to Ken Tata when I met him was, turn around, let me see the back of your head. I know you. I prayed for you. And he thought that was a little strange, but... You and Ken get married. Interesting romance, interesting dating, courtship. Mm. Give us a couple of slices of what that's like. Beyond the honeymoon, there's some things that don't go the way you intend. Well, absolutely. I don't think either of us reckoned how hard marriage would be. And then you add a quadriplegia to the mix, and it gets even harder. And I I remember um, about two, three years into our marriage, I had plenty of help, you know, girls getting me up in the morning, um, but still, most of the burden fell on, on my husband. And and, uh, and, by, and by the way, that's a two-hour process in the morning and a two-hour process in the evening, right. every day. So, you know, Ken, he's, you know, washing dishes. He's getting us dinner, uh, putting my spoon in my splint so I can feed myself. And, and then he, he cleans up and helps me to bed with my girlfriend. And, you know, she takes you know, makeup off or whatever, but still, still he's got a lot of stuff to do. And um, one night he sat on the edge of the bed, and before lights out, he just put his hand on his knees, slumped shoulder, and shook his head and said, I, Johnny, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but I, I feel trapped. I, am, I, I feel awful, and I feel trapped. And my response? Where was your head when we got married? <laughs> Didn't you know it was going to be this hard? You think you feel trapped? How do you think I feel? I've been in this thing for so many years. Why do you think I feel? I feel trapped too. I mean, as, as I'm saying these words, I'm just wishing I'd stuff them back in my mouth because I know that I'm wounding this man who has taken a moment to be vulnerable. And what have I done with it? Ripped him to shreds. And I, I said to Ken, I am so sorry. I, I am so sorry. That's not me. That's not me at all. But that night as I was in bed in the quiet, the Holy Spirit whispered to me, that's just like you. That's you to the core. Don't be fooling yourself. That's you. And it was such a shock to hear that. Because aren't we all the paragons of virtue that we like to think we are? <laughs> and uh, it was a, then began a, a journey of me understanding that my disability was God's main way. I think his main purpose for my disability was to squeeze it hard to reveal the stuff of which I'm actually made. You know, suffering is the textbook that'll teach you who you really are. So get your eyes off your husband for a little bit and see how rotten to the core you are and uh, how trapped by sin and bitterness and complaining and grumbling and murmuring you are. And uh, Ken and I started praying together. We started, and I don't mean just over grace or at night before we went to bed. I mean praying together, you know, 
getting in the car and going to visit a friend and said, why don't we pray together? You know, and we just started this habit. We started reading the Bible together. We started just going through the Bible every year, year after year. And there, there came another time when I had cancer and I, it was hard. Chemotherapy, going to the hospital, lots of doctor appointments, bone scans, x-rays, PET scans. And, and one night he sat on the edge of my bed and, and with his hands on his knees, slump-shouldered, confessed, I, Johnny, I can't do this. We even have lots of help, but man, I just can't do it. I, I feel trapped. This time my response, I don't blame you one bit. If I were you, I'd feel just as trapped. I'd probably feel more trapped. But I think you're doing an amazing job. I'm so proud of you. I think you're doing awesome. And I'm going to make it as easy on you as I possibly can. I'm going to buckle down. We'll find new help. We'll get more prayer support. But we're going to get through this, Ken, because we can do this in Christ. I know we can. And I love you. And I thank you for being honest. But I don't blame you at all for feeling trapped. What a contrast. You know? And it took a number of years to get there. But I think that's what happens on a practical daily basis when it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. The life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in Him, by the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. It's not our response. It's not our anger. It's not all about us and our trapped feelings. and It's about Him. And it's a wonderful thing when you, uh, when you let Him live through you. And it makes for an incredibly rich, happy marriage. I love my husband dearly. He still feels trapped, and so do I sometimes. But man, we love each other. Talk to the discouraged, hopeless uh, friend out of ours. What would you say to him? He who holds fast to the end shall be saved. You know, if everything's not okay yet, it's not the end yet. But the end is coming, and it's going to look really, really good (laughs) compared to all this stuff we go through. Oh, what a glorious day that'll be. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.